Well, if you have your Bibles, once again, I invite you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 9. If you're a guest with us, we're working through this section of the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll begin reading in verse 13 uh, this morning. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1047. I want to speak for a few minutes this morning on this subject, children and the kingdom. Matthew chapter 19, and we'll begin reading in verse 13. And this is what the word of God says. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Ronald and Elizabeth lived across the street from us where we lived in North Carolina. And in that season of life, we walked through one of the most difficult experiences in my 29 years of ministry. Their son was born not long after our son was born. And soon after his birth, they discovered a defect that he was born with. And over the next nine months, he went through serious treatments and eventually died. And not long after that, our first daughter was born. And not long after Megan was born, their first daughter was born. And she too was born with the same defect as their son. And she too died of the same disease. And you say, well, pastor, what did you say to them at the funerals? Instant heaven. Your children are instantly in heaven. How could you say that with such confidence? Because of this passage that we've just read together and others like it. For in Matthew 19, as he was finishing his teaching on marriage, divorce, remarriage, and singleness, a group of people sought an audience with him. And children were brought to Jesus to receive a blessing from him. And you have to remember that in ancient society, children had no rights and they had no status. So as the parents were bringing their children to Jesus, the disciples pushed them away. And in response to these events, Jesus taught the disciples and us that children are recipients of kingdom blessings. And that children serve as models of kingdom realities, illustrating what is required of all of us for salvation and entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Children matter to God, and therefore children should matter to us. And in this exchange with his disciples, Jesus teaches them and us about children and the kingdom. Would you notice with me, first of all, in verse 13, the bringing of children to Jesus. 
Matthew says, Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. Matthew doesn't tell us who brought the children to Jesus, but we can assume from the parallel passages in the Gospel of Mark and in the Gospel of Luke that it was parents who brought their children to Jesus, as Matthew says, that he might lay hands on them and pray. And in Mark chapter 10 and verse 13, this is how Mark describes the scene. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. Listen carefully to how Luke described this situation in Luke chapter 18 and verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke described the same scene. And they use different words to describe it. Some use children, some use infants. And so who was it that these parents were bringing to Jesus? Well, the word children that Matthew uses refers to young children from infancy at least to toddler age. And Matthew says that these parents were bringing these infants and these young toddlers to Jesus so that Jesus would lay his hands on them and pray. Now, this action was a traditional manner of blessing children in Israel, especially when a blessing was being passed from one generation to the next. And this practice goes all the way back to the first book of our Bible and the book of Genesis. Now, the Talmud, the collection of writings that covers Jewish law and tradition, taught that Jewish parents were to bring their children to respected rabbis for blessings and prayer, and that a father would customarily bring his infant child to the synagogue and pray for the child himself. And then he would take the child and place the child in the arms of the elders, and the elders would each individually hold the child and pray for God's blessings on that young life. And so in following that tradition, these parents in the region of Judea beyond the Jordan brought their infants and their toddlers, their young children, to Jesus. They had heard about Jesus. They had heard about his compassion and his love and his mighty working power that could only come from God. They heard of his claims to be the Messiah. And if he truly was God's son, what better person to bless their children than Jesus? And so they brought them to Jesus. Now notice in verse 13 that the disciples resented the interruption of their conversation with Jesus. They were in a great discourse about marriage and deep divorce and remarriage and singleness. And children interrupted their great theological discussion. And so they rebuked the parents who were bringing their children to Jesus. The word rebuke that is used here is a strong word. Matthew loves this word. He has already used it several times in his gospel. He used it in chapter 8 and verse 26 to describe Jesus rebuking the winds and the sea. 
He used it in chapter 16 and verse 22 when Peter rebuked Jesus. And he used it in chapter 17 and verse 18 when Jesus rebuked a demon. And so you can sense the power and the force of this word that Matthew uses to describe the disciples' actions toward these parents and their children. And the language really describes it this way. They continually rebuked the parents for bringing their children as often as the parents brought their children to Jesus. And so it wasn't just a one-time bringing of the children to Jesus. And therefore, it was not a one-time rebuking of the parents for bringing their children to Jesus. And the purpose of the rebuke, as you can see from the text, was to keep the children away from Jesus. And it's apparent from their response that the disciples had one thing and one thing only on their minds, themselves, their inconvenience, and the interruption. But here's what I want you to see, friends, in this simple verse. In the end, the disciples misrepresented Jesus, and they misrepresented the nature of Jesus' kingdom, and they attempted to prevent children and families from coming to the Lord. And so this verse demands, it demands that you and I ask ourselves if we are guilty of preventing children from coming to Jesus. And as I was thinking about this text, I thought about five ways that we often prevent children from coming to Jesus. Here's the first one. By allowing sports and other curricular activities to take priority over church and the worship of God. And friends, when you do that with your children, you are sending them a strong message. That everything else can interfere with the worship of God. That everything else in life is more important than the worship of God. Of God. And might I remind you this morning that when your children face Jesus in eternity, they won't be facing their coach. They won't be facing their teacher. They will be facing the one who has the power to cast their body and their soul into hell. And by allowing other things to have more priority over the souls of your children, you are actually teaching them what is most important in life and that it's not God and the worship of God. Number two, we prevent children from coming to Jesus by failing to model biblical worship and teaching our children how to properly worship. Number three, we prevent children from coming to Jesus by failing to make the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God, and the worship of God as a part and rhythm of our family life from Monday through Saturday. We teach them by our, by our lack of engagement in these things in our home that God is only a priority one day a week and then every once in a while, not every week. And by doing that, we're hindering them. We're putting obstacles in their way of coming to Jesus. Number four. Oh, please listen to this, parents. By allowing your children to choose whether or not they will participate in the life of the church, 
You don't let them choose whether they go to school or not, do you? Well, maybe you do. If you don't let them choose that, why in the world would you let them choose whether or not they're going to participate in the life of the church? Why would you let them choose whether or not they're going to participate in youth ministry or children's ministry or the worship of God? Why would you not say no to the sports team, no to the teacher, no to the extracurricular activity, and yes to God? Why would you not do that? Number five, by seeing children as an interruption or a distraction to worship like the disciples. I mean, after all, we've gathered here for a theological discussion. What part do children have to play in that? Well, according to Jesus, they have everything to do with that. In their book, Children in the Worship Service, David and Sally Michael give four reasons why children should participate when the church gathers for worship. They say, first of all, there is spiritual benefit for children who participate in the worship service. The Holy Spirit is present when the church is gathered and children can experience the conviction of the Spirit in the presence of God in a church service, even though they cannot understand all the words of a song or a sermon. The Word of God is powerful and it has influence over soul and spirit. Additionally, there are tangible aspects in the service that children sense and learn, even if they are not understanding all the words earnestness, bigness, seriousness, joy, and the intensity experienced in the worship service communicates that what is being talked about or sung about is really important. And children have the ability to pick up on what's really important. Number two, attending the worship service involves children in the most central, most regular, most valuable, and most corporate activity of the church. They say when we encourage families to worship together, we communicate to the children that they are a part of the congregation and as such should be included when the church gathers to worship. And the presence of children in worship serves as a reminder to the church of its responsibility to nurture the faith of the next generation. Number three, it provides children with an intergenerational experience and thus the opportunity to be influenced and benefit from the examples of others, especially their parents. They say our children are more likely to cherish the worship of God when they experience and observe the heart of worship in us. Oh, don't you think they notice when you sing just a little bit louder? Don't you think they notice when you're moved to raise your hand to the Lord in worship? Don't you think they notice when an amen is said in response to truth that is proclaimed? Don't you think they can't sense when the Holy Spirit of God descends in the sanctuary? You're underestimating them, friends. Number four. It facilitates the discipleship of our children. Bringing children into the worship service provides an opportunity for them to learn how to worship God and to discover the very purpose for which he created them, to worship him. It also provides an opportunity for them to learn to sit quietly and to submit to their parents' leadership. It teaches them obedience. And God says that he honors 
obedience when children obey their parents. John Piper summed it all up. There is a sense of solemnity and awe which children should experience in the presence of God. This is not likely to happen in children's church. Listen to what he says next. Is there such a thing as children's thunder or children's lightning or the crashing of the sea for children? A deep sense of the unknown and the mysterious can rise in the soul of a sensitive child in solemn worship. If his parents are going hard after God themselves, a deep moving of the magnificence of God can come to the young, tender heart through certain movements of great hymns or loud silence or authoritative preaching. These are of immeasurable value in the cultivation of a heart that fears and loves God. Children absorb a tremendous amount that is of value. And this is true even if they say they are bored. This is true even if they say they are bored. Music and words become familiar to them. The message of the music starts to sink in. They get a favorite song. The form of the service comes to feel natural. Even if most of the sermon goes over their heads, experience shows that children hear and remember remarkable things. Would you stop underestimating your children? If they can understand what they're being taught in school, they can understand the Bible. So how do we apply it? Well, this verse is a reminder to parents that your number one priority should be to bring your children to Jesus. Moms and dads, do you pray for your children? Do you pray over your children? Do you pray with your children? Do you practice family worship? Do they hear you talking about the things of God? Do they hear you discussing the sermon? Do they hear you singing songs that you have learned in worship? Do you live a godly example before your children? Or would you have to confess today that you have allowed other priorities to take precedent over the worship of God and the discipling of your children? You must reckon with these questions. And while moms and dads should ideally be the ones who see to the spiritual formation of children, this calling should be important to grandparents. In the state of West Virginia, more and more grandparents are raising their grandbabies. And so pick up the mantle and mirror this for your grandchildren. And as a church family, we have the responsibility of coming alongside of of parents and equipping them to lead their children to Jesus and to reinforce at church what the parents are trying to do in the home. We have a responsibility as a church to pass the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ on to the next generation in all of its fullness and beauty and power. And this is a task that the whole church must be engaged in. And so if you're a member of First Baptist Church, I ask you today, are you engaged in the task? Are you concerned about the children? Are you interacting with them? Are you praying for them? Are you trying to learn their names? That's a task in itself. It's a gospel issue church.
So we not only see the bringing of children to Jesus. Secondly, I want you to notice in verse 14, the receiving of children by Jesus. Matthew says, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Children loved Jesus, and Jesus loved children. And I want you to notice in verse 14 that Jesus issues a command to the disciples, stating that children must not be prevented from coming to him, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. One person translated this verse this way, let the children alone, beginning immediately, and stop hindering them from coming to me. Let them alone immediately. I love best how Mark describes this scene. Listen to Mark 10, 14 and 15. But when Jesus saw it, saw what? The disciples rebuking the parents and the children. He was indignant. He was ticked off. It's in the Greek, ticked off. (laughs) And he said to them, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Mark describes one of those limited times where the Bible actually says that Jesus became angry. And what I want you to see in the text, friends, is that Jesus could not be more firm in his resolve to receive these children who were being brought to him. One commentator said, it is likely there were a number of reasons Jesus was angry with them. He was angry because he loved little children with great affection, and he no doubt felt special compassion for them because of the sinful, painful, corrupt world into which they had been born and whose evils they would progressively have to face as they grew up. He was angry because he also loved parents and understood the special longings and anxieties they have for their children. He realized that loving little children was a way to their parents' hearts. He was angry because no one, not even the tiniest infant, is outside the care and love of God. He was angry because of the disciples' persistent spiritual dullness and hardness. He doubtlessly was angry because the disciples presumed to determine who could and who could not approach the Lord himself. Jesus was angry, friends, the text says, because the kingdom of heaven belongs to, is characterized by, and is encompassed with children such as these. That's why he was angry. And in this verse, verse 14, there are two implications that we can take away from this passage. And I want you to listen carefully to some of the things that I'm going to say for the next few minutes because they may surprise you and you need to keep your Bible open. This verse, verse 14, is helpful in in applying gospel truth to those who have lost children in a miscarriage or lost children in a stillborn birth or lost children in infancy or lost children at a young age before they were able to grasp the gospel or who have children who have some form of mental deficiency. And Scripture does not address these subjects directly. But Scripture does give us good reason and evidence to trust that our children are safe in the arms of Jesus. And that God grants them entrance into the kingdom 
by the sovereign operation of his grace. And I want to give you three reasons why I think that's true. Here's the first one. The character of God. In one of the most well-known passages in the Old Testament that describes the very nature and character of God himself, Moses wrote this in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6. The Lord, and he uses the word Yahweh, passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And Moses tells us of the very nature and character of our God. He is a God who is gracious. He is a God who is merciful. He is a God who is slow to anger. He is a God who abounds in steadfast love. He is a God of faithfulness. And He is a God of goodness. This is the very nature and character of the God that we have gathered in this place to worship. And according to Genesis chapter 18 and verse 25, every single thing that this God does is right. And according to this passage that we're reading and studying together this morning, God cares particularly about children. And so I would say to you that if you have lost a child, if you have suffered under the immense pain and weight of these experiences, that don't run away from God, run to God. Because even in the midst of this heartbreak and pain, He is good, He is faithful, He is loving, He is merciful, He is kind, and every single thing He does is right. And as Warren Wiersbe says, when you can't see His hand, you trust His heart. And Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6 shows us the heart of God. God can be trusted in our pain. God can be trusted when we don't have answers to our questions. And God is good even in the loss of an infant. Secondly, I have hope that children are in heaven because of the level of accountability that God holds to children. Now you need to listen carefully. Don't tune out on me now. I think I've got your attention. Scripture seems to indicate that young children are held to a different measure of accountability than those who are older and more capable of grasping truth. Listen to the next sentence. I am not talking to you about the phrase and age of accountability. I lived in the South for a while. That was so popular. The age of accountability. Can I help you with that? It's never mentioned in your Bible. It's not there. Quit making stuff up. Find out what is there. It's not about an age of accountability, a certain age when a child becomes accountable before God for their sin. Rather, Scripture teaches that God holds us accountable based on certain truths. And one of those truths is the ability to understand the difference between right and wrong. And in Romans chapter 2, in verses 14 to 16... Paul says that all of us have God's moral law written on our hearts so that people everywhere know good and evil and right and wrong. And this text, while true, seems to be applied differently to children in Scripture. Yes, the law is written on their hearts so that they have the ability to know good and evil. But in Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 39... 
Moses refers to the children as your little children. And listen to what he says next. Who don't know good from evil. This is what the text says. They don't know good from evil. And in the context of Deuteronomy 1, God does not hold these little children accountable for the disobedience of the generations before them. In fact, God says the exact opposite, that the generations before these little children will not be allowed to enter the promised land because they sinned against him and they disobeyed him. But these little children, they were allowed to enter. They were allowed to go into the promised land. Now, this doesn't mean that young children stand innocent before God. The Bible teaches us the exact opposite. Every single person that is born is born with a sinful nature. There's not a single one of us who are innocent, even that little baby in your arms. So what are we to do with this? We're to understand both truths. And that the only way anyone gets into heaven is through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the sacrificial work on the cross that he did and the blood that he shed. Christ is the only way any of us are reconciled to God, including infants and young children. And yet, there's a mystery here. If this is true, how can we be certain that young children are in heaven the same way you can be certain that you're going to heaven. The grace of God. That's the only way anyone gets into heaven. And then in the wisdom and the eternal counsel of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit dispense grace to these little lives who don't know good or evil yet, and it's instant Heaven. Here's the third reason. The example of Scripture. David expressed confidence that his baby would be in heaven. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 23, he responds to his servants who are asking him why he stopped mourning after he received news of the death of his son. And this is what David says. But now he is dead. Why should I keep fasting? Can I bring him back again? Listen next. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David knew that he belonged to God and that one day he was going to die and he was going to be in the presence of God. And with the, conf- the same confidence, confidence that David had about himself, He had about his infant son. And he believed and expressed in that verse that when he died and entered the presence of God, he would not only see the Lord Jesus Christ, he would see his son that died. It's the example of Scripture. Are there more examples? Not that I'm aware of. There's one to give you hope. The day I graduated seminary from my master's degree, we lost our first baby that evening. And I believe I'll see that baby again in heaven because God is good, God is merciful, God is gracious, and God is kind.
and because Jesus Christ shed his blood. J.C. Ryle said, with such a passage as this before us, we may surely hope well about the salvation of everyone who dies in infancy. Well, friends, there's hope in the gospel. There's hope in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, even for little children. But there's a second implication. Do Do you see the text? Do you see verse 14? The second implication is this. Jesus was saying to the disciples that those children whom they were rebuking, representative of all children, listen, don't miss it. It's right in the text. I'm taking it straight out of verse 14. They represent and picture the humility and dependency and trust that anyone must exhibit to enter heaven. And if you go back to chapter 18 in your Bible... And you read verses 1 through 4, which I'm about to do, you'll see what I'm talking about. And Jesus said in those verses, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And in that encounter, the disciples wanted to know, Jesus, which one of us is going to be the greatest? Which one of us is the best? You can just hear the conversation, can't you? But Jesus wanted them to consider if they were even going to make it into the kingdom of heaven. And so he tells them in Matthew 18 and verse 3, do you see it? Unless you turn, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now listen, children, young adults, meeting adults, senior adults, you really need to listen to the next five or ten minutes of what I'm going to say. This is the most important thing that I could ever say to you today in this sermon, what's coming next. He says, unless you turn, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word less, unless, introduces a necessary condition that must be fulfilled to enter heaven. Unless you do this, you will never go to heaven. That's what he's saying. A condition has to be met. And notice what he says in chapter 18 and verse 3. You must do it. It's personal. Children, your parents can't do it for you. Your grandparents can't do it for you. You have to do it. Adults, you have to do it. And what must you do? Look at what he says again in 18.3. You must turn. That word means you make an about face and you go in the opposite direction. The nature of the verb also provides the possibility of translating it this way. Unless you are changed, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's the key. Unless you're changed, unless you are different, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this word turn, it's used repeatedly in the New Testament, specifically in the book of Acts. And it speaks of turning from unbelief To believe that you don't believe in God, but now you do. From being away from God to now turning to God. From turning away from darkness to turning to light. And from turning from the power of Satan to turning to the power of God. It's a very powerful word. Peter used it twice in his first sermon in Acts chapter 2. And this is what he said in Acts chapter 3, or excuse me, 2 in verse 19. Repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. Repent, 
turn so that your sins would be wiped away and forgiven. Meaning, if you don't repent, if you don't turn, if you don't go in the opposite direction, if you don't have a change, your sins won't be forgiven. Chapter 2 and verse 26. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. You turn from darkness to light, from wickedness to goodness, from away from God to God. It speaks of a change. And listen to the text. Listen, friends, these are Jesus' words. Unless you turn, unless you repent of your sins, unless there is a change in your life, you will never go to heaven. It's a condition that must be met. And then Jesus isn't finished. In chapter 18, he tells them that they must turn and become like children. Well, what does it mean for them to turn and become like children? To turn, to have a change, I've explained that to you. What does it mean for them to be like children? Well, in chapter 18 and verse 4, I think Jesus makes it clear. He speaks of humility. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So according to Jesus, to enter the kingdom of heaven... You must have the status of a child, which means that you have no status at all, which means that you are completely humble and dependent upon Jesus and Jesus alone. And notice what he said in Matthew 18, verses 3 and 4. You must become like a child. It speaks of a conversion. It speaks of a change. It's the same description that the word turn gives us. Something has to change in your life. You have to turn. There needs to be a difference for you to become like a child. Turning and becoming, according to Jesus, go hand in hand. You turn, you repent, you go in the opposite direction, being sorrowful for your sin and turning away from it. It's not remorse. It's actually turning away from it. Like, you don't just feel bad about it. Listen to me. You're tired of being in it. That's the turning. It's not feeling bad about it in the moment. It's being tired of it. You're sick and tired of being sick and tired. You're sick and tired of being consumed by evil and wickedness and darkness. And you're so sick of it, you want to turn from it. That's what it means. And then becoming, you're changed. Your life's different. Your wife knows that you're different. Your children know that you're different. Your parents know that you're different. Your boyfriend or your girlfriend knows that you're different because something major and radical has happened in your life. You've become something else. The Bible describes it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, everything has become new. Like when you turn from your sin and you become a child of God. You become like a little child in humble dependence upon God. He makes you a new creation. All of the old in your life goes away and you become something new. You become something different. And listen to me. The language that Jesus uses here indicates that the disciples could not turn and change on their own. They needed something outside of themselves to help them turn and to help them change. And maybe that's why you've tried to turn and you've tried to change and you've never been able to 
make a difference. Because you need something outside of yourself to help you turn and to help you change. And that's something outside of yourself, the Bible says, is the Holy Spirit of God. For the Bible teaches in the Gospel of John that you can't come to the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again in John 3, 3. And then Jesus explained what that looks like in John 3, 8. And he said, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit of God. To, to truly turn in repentance, to truly change, to truly become a new person, the Holy Spirit of God has to blow on your life like the wind and enable you to turn and to change. And He brings the change in your life and He draws you to God. And here's the reality of the gospel, friends. You must turn and you must believe and you must change, but you can't turn, you can't believe, and you can't change until the Spirit of God moves on your life. And brings you into the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus says clearly to enter the kingdom of heaven. You have to become like a child. Humble. Dependence. Upon God. And the work of Christ. It's the only way into the kingdom. Jesus described it this way in his first sermon. The Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a poverty of spirit. It's realizing how much you're in sin, how much your life is messed up because of sin, and you can't do anything about it. You can't do anything for yourself. You've tried and tried and tried, and it all ends up in frustration and weariness and groaning. And so you are so at the end of yourselves, you are so poor in spirit, that you just look to Christ and say, I've got nothing, you are everything, I come to you empty. Turn me, change me, save me. That's poverty of spirit. Then in verse 4, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You mourn over your sin. You grieve over it. You hate it. And Jesus says, when you mourn like that over your sin, he'll comfort you. He'll bring you to himself. In verse 5, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You're in utter humility. And in verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. You hunger for it. You want it. You want this change. You want this turn. You want God. You want to know what it feels like to have the forgiveness of your sins. All those things that keep you up at night. All those things that you carry around like a big, full, heavy backpack on your back. All those things that wear your conscience out. That make you feel guilty and dirty and miserable. You want rid of all of that. And so you turn from it and you bring it to Jesus and you leave it at his feet in humility and poverty of spirit. You come as a child and you rise up as a child of the king. You can't work to get this. You can't earn it. You can't achieve it. You can't do anything in your power to get into the kingdom of heaven. All you can do is go and humble dependence to God and cry out to him to save you and forgive you would you listen to me church if you don't come to God like that you will never enter the kingdom of heaven that's not the words of this pastor that's the words of the one you'll stand before one day to be judged unless you come like that 
you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Only, only Jesus Christ through his spirit can turn you and change you. And if you recognize your spiritual poverty today, would you turn to Christ as your Lord and Savior? Would you confess your sin that has separated you from the God who created you? Would you turn away from it today and turn to him and believe that if you ask him to forgive you and save you, he will? Would you believe today that he has the power to change you? If he could be raised from the dead, he can change you. John MacArthur said, The kingdom is populated by only two kinds of subjects. Those who die while little children and those who come in trusting, humble attitude of a child. That's it. That's it. You'll never enter unless you come like that. Well, we not only see the bringing of the children to Jesus and the receiving of the children to Jesus, we finally see the blessing of the children by Jesus in verse 15. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And just as the parents requested, Jesus put his hands on them, prayed for them, and blessed them, and went away. Mark says it this way in Mark 10, 16. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them. He took them in his arms and he blessed them. And the word blessed indicates with passionate fervency. With passionate fervency. He picked those little ones up, put them in his arms, and blessed them. Can't you see it? What a picture. What a picture. I want you to notice in verse 15, Jesus makes no mention of baptism. He makes no mention of parental covenant or parental faith. He makes no mention of personal faith on the part of children. To make an argument for infant baptism, as many people do using this text, is to force a meaning on the text, friends, that's simply not there. This has nothing to do about infant baptism. This has everything to do about Jesus blessing and loving little children and bringing them into his arms and showing all of us what the kingdom of heaven is like. I close with these words from a great preacher of the past, J.C. Ryle. Let us draw from these verses encouragement to attempt great things in the religious instruction of children. Let us begin from their very earliest years to deal with them as having souls to be lost or saved and strive to bring them to Christ. Let us make them acquainted with the Bible as soon as they can understand anything. Let us pray with them and pray for them and teach them to pray for themselves. And we may rest assured that Jesus looks with pleasure on such endeavors and is ready to bless them. We may rest assured that such endeavors are not in vain. The seed sown in infancy is often found after many days. Happy is that church whose infant members are cared for as much as the oldest communicants. The blessing of him that was crucified will surely be on that church. He put his hands on little children and he prayed for them. The disciples 
viewed children as a distraction. Jesus welcomed them as subjects of his kingdom. Unless you come to him like a child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Children, you must turn from your sins and ask Jesus Christ to save you, to go to heaven. Parents, you must turn from your sins and ask Jesus Christ to save you, to go to heaven. Senior adults, you're getting close to your funerals. You must turn from your sin and ask Jesus Christ to save you, to go to heaven. College students, young career, young married, you must turn from your sins and ask Jesus to save you, to go to heaven. There is no other way than Jesus. Let's pray.